everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast, presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs and exclusive home of Cubs Checking. Open online today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly. Tony Andraki here, joined by Lance Brozdowski, our marquee sports network multimedia producer. And Lance's boots on the ground right now in South Bend, getting a chance to look at some of the Class A Cubs prospects down there. Lance, what's it been like to, to view some of these guys in South Bend this week? It's been fantastic. I haven't been to a minor league game in probably about over two years. All my conversations have been on the phone, so I can't tell you how much I value being able to actually look at these guys face-to-face -face and have conversations about the game. Max Bain, Ryan Jensen, hopefully Cole Franklin at some point this year will all grace this mound in South Bend at Four Winds Field down here. Very exciting team on the player development side and on the pitching side specifically, and I got a pretty good look at it in the last couple days. Yeah, and I know you talked as well with uh, the player development coach, George Thanopoulos, and we'll get into more in depth a little bit later on, but Lance, just a, a little bit initially here, what were your takeaways from talking with George and, and just how cool was that to be able to talk to one of the guys that's behind the scenes helping these guys develop to get to the big leagues here? Yeah, no, it was a great conversation. It, was, it ran about 30 minutes, which I have to say is probably one of the longest conversations I've had with a coach in a very long time. But he's an extremely intelligent individual, comes from Elite Baseball, which is a third-party training facility out in Newport Beach, California. Um, really good perspective of the game, very good blend of being able to communicate and develop relationships with players, but also understands all the intricacies of pitch design and a variety of other topics that are integral to progressing talents like Max Bain and Ryan Jensen. So our, our conversation was fantastic, and I'm excited to kind of talk more about it. Sounds good. All right. Well, first up, let's actually hear from uh, the Cubs VP of Scouting, Dan Kantrovitz. Cubs had their draft this week, and Dan hopped on to shed a little light behind the scenes on, on how it came to fruition for the Cubs and how all 20 picks played out in his assessment. So let's hear from Dan real quick. All right. We're joined now by Dan Kantrovitz, the Cubs VP of Scouting. And Dan, this draft I know was very different than last year's draft. Uh, you guys were able to be in the draft room and, and have a lot of people there. Uh, the COVID restrictions last year was very different. Five rounds last year versus 20 this year. Can you just take us through the process leading up to the draft? What is the draft prep like in the months and then kind of in the week before the draft? Right. So, you know, it, while we're not quite back to normal when it comes to sort of a traditional scouting season and then the way that we prepare for the draft, it, it definitely felt a little more normal this year than, than last year, I think, for, for obvious reasons. Um, but no, the one difference this year was that, you know, we had this extra month, um, you know, where most of the seasons had ended. Um, and so, you know, it comprised of us working out players of us doing interviews, um, and then the major league baseball combine, which was the last week before we actually brought our scouts into Chicago. Um, so, you know, while it resembled a traditional scouting season, in some ways, there were still some, some added wrinkles in this last month that, you know, where we had to interpret some data that maybe we weren't totally used to. Um, and we're just able to get a little more thorough look at some players, um, you know, via workouts and, and, and the combine. But then prior to the draft, five days before the, you know, the, the start of it, we had all of our scouts come into Chicago. Um, and really from, you know, nine in the morning till six or seven at night, we're, we're in there in the room discussing players. Um, you know, each day was, you know, whether it was right-handed pitchers or shortstops. And, you know, we'd go around the room and every scout that saw the player uh, would kind of weigh in on them. And then we'd make comparisons, you know, to, to other players. Um, and at times, you know, there'd be some heated debate, which, you know, was good and which was what we sort of hoped would happen. And, um, you know, it also provide an opportunity for some of the 
the folks in the front office, whether it's research and development, whether it's player development, what, you know, uh, you know, to also just hear how the scouts felt about players, but then, you know, also to, to weigh in and, and, and debate players themselves. So I think it was a really neat opportunity for the last, you know, really week um, and primarily those five days before the draft for, you know, everybody in the office, scouts included, um, you know, just to hear, you know, all the players that were considering that we're talking through, but also to, you know, debate them and line up the board, you know, the results, uh, the resulting uh, kind of action from those conversations was maybe a, a magnet going in a different spot, or maybe this player jumping this player on our, on our list. So um, it was, a, it was a really productive week, a really fun week. And, you know, I think everybody just was super thirsty just to kind of get back in a draft room and, you know, talk about players or hear about players um, and, you know, so from that standpoint, even though there was kind of those added wrinkles this last month um, in terms of, you know, just new data in the combine, uh, once we got in that draft room, it, it started to feel real and, and, and more like normal and kind of more how this process is, is supposed to feel. Yeah, so that's what I was going to kind of follow up on. Like you said, the heated debates and everything. How important was that to get that in person and get the interaction with uh, with everybody all in the same room versus like Zoom or Teams calls? Because it would probably, I imagine, be a quite a bit difficult to last year to try to have those debates and instead of talking over each other. Like how important was it to get back in person face-to-face? Uh, I mean, for me, it, I, I think it's critical. Uh, you know, I think you – it's a process that we've, you know, it's a tried and true process over time that we've tweaked, that we've gotten to a point where we feel like we, we know sort of the, the best way to do it in terms of uh, eventually ranking players. And, you know, to, to not be able to do that, you know, last year, I think that was a, that, that was a big loss, you know, for, for everybody. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think you could understate how important it is to just bring everybody in the room and, um, and, and, and debate players. There, there's no substitute for watching and listening and just seeing the energy of an area scout talk about a player that, that he really is convicted on. Um, and that's something that's really difficult to communicate and convey over, over a zoom meeting. What was the process of the combine like? Um, Cause that's new, right? This was the first year of it all. So like, what was that like from your guys' perspective? I, I don't really know much at all about it. And I know I imagine fans don't either. What, what was the combine like? So the combine was, um, a week long event where it comprised of roughly three games from some of the top high school players, not all of them. Um, and then in, in addition to that, and perhaps even more important to that uh, was the medical portion where, you know, all the players kind of uh, were put through the ringer, a full evaluation from not only our team doctors, but other team physicians throughout the league. Um, and then all that information and data was shared with every team. Um, you know, they started, to, to do some, some diagnostic testing on sort of the agility side on kind of the, you know, which would fall into the high performance umbrella, you know, as far as things that, you know, Corey Kennedy and Adam Beard um, have studied and, and, and are more uh, um, familiar with than, than, than we are. But so there was the medical part, there was the strength and conditioning slash agility part. Um, and then that evaluative component, you know, where they actually put players on the field in the game and, um, but, you know, I also think it was, uh, you know, a format that probably may be tweaked a little bit next year. And, you know, as the first year that the league was doing this, I think they, they probably learned a lot. But, um, you know, there were also other things going on at that time, whether that was, you know, the, the Cape Cod League, whether that was high school playoffs. Uh, you know, I, I, one of those days, you know, I was with actually our area scout, Billy Swope, down in northern Virginia watching, you know, James Triantos win the state championship. So, it wasn't the only thing going on at that time. 
but it was definitely uh, something new. And, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, we were able to, you know, extract some, uh, some meaningful information from that event. What is it from your perspective, like coordinating everything? Cause there's so many players, like how do you keep a mental catalog of all these players? And then when you are in person with all these scouts, you know, getting everything honed in and then figuring out, cause you're on the clock, like to make your pick and, and to do that, like, what's that craziness? Like, how can you take us maybe behind how that works from your perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, 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 uh, the analogy I would use would be, you know, studying for, for a open book final exam. And, you know, you, you, you get into the exam and you have all this information, you have uh, all the, and it's a group test because you have all these people, you know, that you're taking this exam with. And um, I think the, you know, going into that, the preparation, the trick is to um, just have studied a lot and, and, and the repetition. And in and, and this way, what I mean, you know, what I mean by that is, that studying is, you know, riding around with our scouts in, in, in their car for a few hours, hearing about the players that they like and don't like. Um, and then, you know, or sitting at a game with them, you know, prior to batting practice and, uh, you know, having our area scout talk about, you know, say, I like this guy or that guy. Um, and just, you know, or those phone calls or reading, just reading the reports or just the, the text messages that you get, you know, from scouts every year. Oh, you know, this guy really lit me up tonight. I'm, I'm a big fan. And I think, you know, you start to, um, digest and, 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 and really sort of just engulf all that information over the course of a spring. Um, and then, you know, it culminates with some, some more formal ways of, of preparing and studying and combining that with some of the more, you know, just analytical data that we have. Um, but ultimately it ends up just being, you know, I think uh, you just have to immerse yourself in it all spring, all year. And then once you get to the draft, um, you know, those draft meetings, hopefully every name is, you know, on that board you're familiar with and familiar with who likes them and who doesn't like them and, um, and what stands out, you know, about these players. So uh, I think it ends up being, you know, just a really analogous to, you know, uh, an open book test and uh, whoever, you know, puts the most time into studying and, um, you know, has spent the most time out in the field watching players, I think ends up uh, probably, uh, you know, doing the best in the draft. So then how did the open book test go overall? Like how would you assess it um, for the Cubs in 2021 this year? Yeah, I, I, I uh, we're happy about it. We're, we're, we're beyond happy about it, but you know, uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, we're probably not going to get uh, final grades for, for, for some time on it. So uh, I, I, I think that's still uh TBD, but initial results, we, we, you know, couldn't be more thrilled. What was the biggest surprise to you from the draft, whether it was, you know, the way it played out? Because you mentioned, too, like you guys picking at 21, you're at the mercy of the teams, the 20 teams ahead of you that have to pick. So just overall how it played out for the league or how it played out for you guys, what was kind of the biggest surprise for you? Um, you know, I think thinking back on it, I think the way that the players went off the board, I, I I don't know if it was surprising, but I think there was certainly a pattern of teams looking at, uh, you know, getting better at managing their pools. You know, I think when you look at what pool, you know, the, like our pool, for example, was, you know, rough was just south of 7 million. I mean, some teams had twice that. And I think what you were seeing was teams doing a really good job, at least, uh, you know, kind of from, from our perspective of, of managing their pool and trying to, you know, figure out when to go over in that pool in certain spots of the draft, when to go over, 
uh, and just making really efficient use of that number. And, you know, we tried to do the same, but um, it looked like, you know, from, you know, just being in there and, and now looking at some of the results that, you know, there were quite a few teams that, um, that did a really good job in that way. So I think that might be the, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a change from, from past years, but it's just something that, you know, I think we're observing and, and maybe the data will, will support that in a few years, but uh, it does seem that, you know, teams there's uh, are getting really smart at, at how they're just allocating their pool and, um, and, and the different strategies that they're employing. We get a chance to talk to Jordan Wick shortly after you guys drafted him in the first round. And um, I know one of the things you said too, that stood out was the mental component and how he broke down what he's best at, what his strengths are, how he use, utilizes his repertoire and stuff. And, and I mean, yeah, that whole kind of mental component, the intangibles really stood out to me too. When we were talking to him, he was just a very, you know, smart, intelligent guy and good speaker and all that. Like, but when you do talk to these guys and get a chance to either talk to them in person or via zoom or whatever, how is it that you prioritize the intangible aspect, the, the mental stuff that may set them apart? Um, yeah, it's, it's no doubt is it important. And it, it's, it's part of the, the calculus when we're adding everything up about a player and trying to figure out, you know, what makes this guy tick? Um, how resilient is he going to be? How's he going to fit in, in a big league clubhouse? Um, how's he going to react to adversity? How's he going to be able to make adjustments? Um, but the reality is you don't really know that until after you pick a player, I think you can have, you know, a, 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 your best guess and a good feel for that. In case of Jordan, you know, our area scout, Ty, or, uh, Ty Nichols did a, you know, excellent job of, 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 of getting a feel for that. And, you know, from day one, he was convicted that, you know, Jordan has the type of makeup that, that we're looking for. Um, and then I think we got some follow-up information on that. Um, you know, at the combine in terms of just having Jordan be able to break down his repertoire, understand, understand it and, 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 and just the intent that he has and that he's not out there just sort of throwing. Um, I think that really gave us the, the added confidence that, that Jordan has what it takes. Um, but, you know, the more that I've gotten to, to know him, um, you know, since the draft and, and, and just uh, it's, you know, um, we're, we're, we're only be we're only getting more excited in, 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 in his case. And I think that that's not always the case. Sometimes you draft a player and you have a you know certain feel about, it, you know, who he is as a person and his makeup. And, you know, maybe you get some mixed messages after the draft and, and, and have some, some doubts, but that's, that's not the case with Jordan. I mean, he's, he's just, he's kind of exceeded everything that we thought about him since we drafted him. And um, it's, uh, you know, getting more excited about him every, every time I learn something new about him. When you only have maybe one or a multiple conversation with guys and you want to try to figure out their character and the intangibles, you said, what is it that you look for in some of those guys and just maybe a brief conversation that you or the scouts are able to have with them pre-draft? Yeah, it's so difficult to, to find players that have overcome true adversity on the field, you know, because the, the subset of guys that we're looking at up top, um, you know, have been successful most of their careers. And so, you know, especially when you're talking about a high school kid and, you know, these kids put up now, you know, some historic numbers and, um, but the reality is they all should be performing really well uh, at, at, at that level. So it's, it's difficult to, um, you know, to talk to a player that's had, especially a younger player that's had real adversity on the field and had to sort of fight through that. But that's the number one thing that, that we're looking for, uh, you know, because once they get into professional baseball, they're going to have adversity, whether it's right away and, and just, you know, not, you know, playing up to the competition immediately, 
or whether that's, um, you know, sometime down the road with an injury and having to just, you know, fight through that. Um, so I think trying to really put our finger on, you know, when a player has experienced that adversity and if and how he overcame it um, is, is one of the most important, if not the most important thing that we're looking for when we're assessing makeup of a player. You mentioned James Trancos too, the second round pick uh, with a guy like that, who is in high school, dominated competition, like you said, but was a two way player. How do you take that into account too, in terms of drafting? And, and we obviously have seen what Shohei Otani does. I know he's a unicorn here, but like just in general, like, is there a thought is dreaming that, Hey, this guy could be um, that moving forward or putting him in a box. Like you drafted James as a third baseman. Now, how does that process go through? Yeah. Um, uh... It's a really good question because, um, you know, one thing you want to ask yourself when you're looking at a player in person is, okay, what am I missing? Um, and, you know, I'm constantly asking myself that over and over again uh, when I'm at the field. Okay, what, what, what am I missing about this guy? Where could I be wrong? Um, and one of the things that popped in my mind with James is, well, this guy's a really good pitcher. You know, I ended up seeing him twice uh, on the mound, uh, which was not by design because my preference was to, you know, see him defensively so I could – you know, get a better chance to evaluate that. But, um, you know, it's, it, it just probably speaks to sort of how good of an all around player he is that his coach, um, you know, and that, you know, James for that matter consistently wanted to be out there on the mound when it counted. But, um, you know, to your question, I think, you know, ask myself, well, how good of a pitcher is he? And, you know, I think he, you know, clearly we like his bat better than his arm, but, you know, that's one of the questions that I think came up and ultimately where we landed on sort of that, that in uh, on that front was that you know his bat is a potential impact bat and you know i think we certainly prefer him as a position player um but you know that was one of the things that i think came up and then you know in addition to that it's just you know get, it was difficult to actually see him play the field um you know it was a limited college or high school baseball season for him um but i think looking back on it we had scout coverage at maybe every single game James played this year, um, which is, which is pretty difficult when you're looking at a high school prospect, uh, you know, especially one that, you know, that, you know, kind of where his season was as late as, uh, as, as James's was um, in, in the season. But, um, you know, one of the things that in James's case in particular, that really helped our evaluation was, uh, was a workout that we had with him at our Myrtle beach uh, facility. And, you know, we, timed it so he had enough time after his high school season ended so that you know he could recover um and then we were able to get him out on the field at Myrtle um and and really get a feel for him defensively and get comfortable with that um and and you know ultimately I think we we were comfortable enough obviously to to take him with our second pick so what's the approach then here you mentioned when we talked to you a couple of days ago that Jordan Wicks um he's already thrown you know quite a few innings like almost 100 this year and just uh, with these guys or James coming off just such a weird year last year and then not necessarily a normal high school season. What's your approach with all of these guys maybe moving forward and, and how they fit in, whether playing a little bit of pro ball this year or just kind of resting and, and gearing up for next year? Yeah, you know, I think we're we're still digesting that now. And, and you know, we're not going to know the, the, you know, even the near-term plan with some of these guys until we just – until they pass their physicals and, you know, until they're able to um, – you know, uh, get a um, uh, totally able to get a sense for what their true workload was. You know, sometimes, we, you know, we're not totally sure what they've been doing between their end of their season and the draft. Um, and, and so, 
I don't think we, we, we have a great feel for that at this point, and we'll, we'll give it some time until, uh, you know, and let the intake process sort of play itself out. Um, but I'd be surprised if any of these guys, you know, uh, particularly the arms, you know, are you know, go immediately to any kind of full season team. I think we'll, you know, take our time, uh, do an evaluation of them in the pitch lab, um, you know, obviously player development will then determine and dictate sort of what needs to be done from there. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I think we'd w- prefer to err on the side of uh, just being sort of patient and cautious with these guys this first season, you know, out just because it, like you said, it was coming off more of a, you know, uh, an untraditional type of, uh, you know, season. And, and the last thing we want to do is uh, rushing these guys out there and, and, and get them hurt. Last one here then, uh, yeah, I know you were so locked into this draft, but guys from last year, the five picks, you know, starting with Ed Howard, I, how has everything been going with him? How much do you kind of, you know, look at like uh, Ed's run this year and first season in professional ball and, and just how last year's draft class has played out this season? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm, I'm as excited about Ed as I've ever been. I mean, have, actually now having been able to see him on the field, um, you know, it, it, it's hard not to get excited about him you know, clearly he's still adjusting to the level of the league. And, and, and I think from an offensive standpoint, um, it's totally to be expected and totally understandable. You go from essentially playing, you know, your junior season and uh, you know, of, of high school in Chicago to then your next level of competition is in, you know, full season able. Um, and, you know, to, but if you go, if you actually see him in person, you know, he's, he's not getting overmatched uh, and, and, you know, he's all his at bats are competitive. Um, he's hitting the ball hard. Um, you know, he's contributing on the bases. He's showing off his stellar glove. Um, and he, he looks the part out there and it's, uh, uh, so yeah, I, I'm as excited about that as, as I think we've ever been. Um, and you know, he's, uh, um, he's, he's just, he's right on track. And I think just continuing to have some patience with him is, is, is the right approach. And, you know, I, I think our PD is doing a great job there. Um, so yeah. Well, yeah, Dan, thank you so much. Appreciate all the insight into the draft, and uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, guys. Take care. At Wintrust, we know true fans show their team pride every chance they get. With Cubs checking, you'll score a Cubs debit card so you can show your support every time you pay. Open today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly. $100 required to open. Member FDIC. So, Lance, we just heard a little bit from Dan Kantrovitz talking about the Cubs draft, and their first-round pick was really impressive. He had a great college resume, Jordan Wicks, the left-handed pitcher, uh, but he also was really impressive in terms of his interview with us and, and talking with media a little bit. And uh, he's a guy that's trying to get pretty much to the same spot where Ryan Jensen is right now, where you are in South Bend. Maybe we see Wicks there next year as well, but, yeah, you know, Jensen is a guy that he wants to follow in the same footsteps, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. I think I think a key thing here is that Wicks is going to have a little bit of an advantage. Jensen went through a COVID season where uh, most of True. the training was done remotely in 2020, obviously, and now he's finally back to a full season high-level baseball against competition that is uh, in line with his age, and I imagine Wicks will have a little bit of an advantage running through, probably not full season by the end of this year, but potentially in 2022, heading to Four Winds Field out here in South Bend and gracing the mound. Um, very excited for him as a lefty. Jensen's a little a righty, and uh, this team has developed some pretty admirable pitching prospects in the last couple of years after having a bit of an issue developing that. 
Yeah, and one of the guys Wick said that he really wants to talk to is, is Kyle Hendricks and really try to pick his brain because he feels they're, they're both uh, similar types of pitchers in terms of field pitchers and, and really intelligent guys who try to compete with like the mental game as well. And, and in talking with you, I know Ryan Jensen, you said is kind of a similar feel. So what, what have your conversations been like with Jensen and what takeaway did you get from, uh, from talking to him there? Yeah, the Jensen conversation was fantastic. We actually ended the conversation by joking that he has a bit of a telepathic connection to Kyle Hendricks because Jensen wow. is also an individual with a ton of arm side run on all his pitches. He throws a four seam, a sinker, and a changeup, which all grade out uh, relatively above average in terms of that horizontal movement running into a right handed batter. Uh, that's an extremely important part of his repertoire. I know in the current age of baseball, you have a ton of guys throwing high vertical four seamers. We get that rise up in the zone that drops less than a hitter expects. But Jensen is kind of the opposite, he's kind of the antithesis of that with everything running in on a right-handed hitter. And that's a big part of his game. He's like the, the exit velocity limiter, and he generates a, ro a lot of ground balls. Don't expect to see K9s above 11 or 12. But uh, to him, I don't think that matters too much because he's got his job done for the most part. And that's the biggest thing for any of these prospects down here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what has that process been like really with him in terms of, like you said, getting the job done, but also focusing on the development aspect where they can't necessarily get caught up in results because they're obviously focusing on development, working their pitches or their repertoires or how they attack hitters and the results. I, I wouldn't, shouldn't say don't matter, but obviously don't matter as much as they do here in the big leagues. Yeah, a great example of that is early in the season, Ryan Jensen only threw one breaking ball in a start. So if you look at his aggregate pitch distribution from this season of 2021, it's heavily skewed towards fastball. So one of the first questions I asked him was, hey, man, you're pretty high on fastball usage, and not many guys at the major leagues are throwing fastballs above the rate that you are. How do you view that developmentally? And he's like, well, listen, I threw a start earlier in the year where I only threw one breaking ball. And that's kind of the player development trajectory for him. I think this season is just developing those secondaries. I talked about the change. I talked about the sinker and the four-seamer, but he also throws a slider and a curveball. And the two things with that slider and the curveball that have been part of the development goal for the last couple of years is separating them in terms of movement, so getting them to move distinctly. And the key thing there on the slider is getting him to throw it harder. It's not a pitch with a ton of break. He doesn't have a natural affinity for spin, as many guys do at the major league level. But uh, the key with him, again, is more feel. So getting that pitch, can you get that pitch up to 88, 89 miles per hour such that it kind of compensates for the lack of total horizontal glove side movement going away from a right-handed hitter. And the same thing with the curveball. The development action on that has just been getting more vertical break. Similar to what Kyle Hendricks did with his curveball over the last couple years, getting that pitch to drop more, allowing it to have more aggregate movement and be more effective in generating both ground balls and generating swing and miss. So towards the end of the year, I asked him, like, what is your distribution of pitches going to be? And uh, for I didn't want to exactly give away what he told me, but uh, the idea for him is to try to get all those secondaries above 10% or so, where they actually become a a legitimate secondary pitch for him as opposed to being in kind of that five to eight percent window where guys could as, as a hitter you could kind of almost forget about it as an offering but uh, Jensen's a fascinating individual really fun to talk to he also golfs with Cole Franklin and Brendan Davis so uh, it sounds like you you might need to head out there and join it and make it a foursome sometime in Arizona Tony <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> the guys here at Marquee keep trying to get me to go golf with them, and I've golfed nine holes like twice in my life and was never very good at it. So <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll send you down there to golf in my uh, place uh, with those that. guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but that is really fascinating. And like you said, definitely getting the secondaries up over 10%, it, it, it is important. It, it makes you think, makes the hitters think about something else. And it keeps that fresh in their mind, as you said. And, um, you know, another guy down there, Jensen's teammate at the moment, Max Bain, he's a guy a lot of Cubs fans seem to, 
to really be kind of rallying around it as well and, and really intriguing pro pitching prospect there in South Bend. What have you seen from Bain so far? What's kind of the breakdown uh, of him at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I'll compare it to what I just talked about with Jensen. It's just a very different pitcher. It's a very different kind of mix. He has a high-rise vertical movement fastball, which again lines up with a lot of what we're seeing at the major league level. Getting that pitch up in the zone where it's a little bit more effective and the approach angle of that pitch is more effective. So he sports that. He also throws a cutter off that at the top of the zone, which again has a high amount of vertical movement. So it allows him to tunnel in that upper third of the plate. But then he also throws a changeup, a curveball, and a slider. The slider is very different from Jensen's. Jensen's slider is a little bit more of kind of almost like a cutter-ish pitch uh, at that 89-ish, or let's say 87, 88 mile per hour velocity. He's trying to get that up to 89. But with Bainey, his, his slider is a little bit more down action, so it's a little bit more break to it. I'd say maybe similar to like a Trevor Williams or something like that along those lines. But uh, that's a, it's a really interesting pitch for him. I'd say it's probably his most comfortable secondary. He sports that forcing with that slider most often. And as you're watching him, you'll probably mistake that slider for his curveball, but they're very different in shape. Um, he has an incredible understanding of what he does. And I'm talking about what he does on the pitching side, but also what he does biomechanically and the data that he's involved with off the field. He is extremely tapped into his own development, which is a bit of a contrast from Jensen. Jensen's a lot more of a field guy. He doesn't really even watch back every single one of his starts, only when there's something glaring. But Bain digests everything in the next couple days after his start. He even goes through every single pitch and puts up his intended location and then the result of the pitch and has a third-party company that actually uh, looks at the differential between between those two and informs him of where those where his most consistent misses are and one of his player development goals is to make more consistent misses and get competitive misses as opposed to just throwing away counts he has a really good ability to get into 0-2 counts and 1-2 counts but he's had a little bit of trouble putting guys away and we saw that the other night when he couldn't get out of the first inning unfortunately and I have a conversation coming up with him a little bit later we have a bit of a history in terms of talking to one another so I'm really excited to talk to him about how he's digested that start less than 24 hours after kind of struggling a little bit um, but again and just really, really tapped into data. Uh, I was talking to George Thanopoulos, the, the player development coach down here, as, as we kind of alluded to, and George told me that he actually thinks Max can teach the coaches some things. And I doubt you're going to hear that about many players below the age of 26, 27 years old. You might hear that about the professor and Kyle Hendricks. But with a guy like Bain, who's still at this level of his development uh, in affiliated ball, it's, it's a surprising note to hear from a player development coach that's so tapped in to pitch design and analytics. Yeah, for sure. And, and Thanopoulos also has a, just a really interesting role in helping these guys develop. So in, in talking with George, I, I guess, what did you kind of glean from that conversation in terms of how he helps uh, guys that are so different with Jensen's a field guy, as you said, and Bain is a lot more analytical and, and could even teach some of the, the analytical coaches and stuff like that. How, how does he work with those guys to help each of them on their developmental path? Yeah, the key to that, I think, is relationships. You have to understand how the pitcher ingests information. So a guy like Bain is going to understand when he's on the mound and say he has a Rapsoda setup, which is a, a small little black box you might see in between home plate and the mound that gives real-time feedback of pitch movement and pitch information. It allows guys to really kind of immediately see what their offerings are doing in comparison to what they should be doing. But uh, with Bain, that's a, that's a really key point. He loves that. He needs that. And communicating something along the analytics space 
from a guy like George Tubain is, is going to click with him a lot easier than it's going to click with a guy like Jensen, who doesn't literally told me he does not consider himself a big Rapsodo guy, so to speak, which isn't an issue. It just it creates a really complex problem for player development coaches like George, where you have to be able to communicate to two very different players. And it's a big thing because he works for Elite, Elite Baseball out in Newport, California, and a lot of those guys take the initiative to come to that facility. So they go into that facility knowing that they want to change either their sequencing of how they move on the mound or how they want to design a specific pitch. But when you come to an organization, like the Cubs, they've drafted a lot of these guys, and you can't guarantee that every single guy here is going to have a strong feeling about wanting to see their pitch movement after every start. So the reality is, like, you really have to separate and understand how those guys digest information and, and then come up with a way that's really effective to be able to communicate what's going on. And like I said, like, Bain's going to understand when you're telling him that, it, you know, the axis on his pitch is falling, which may be limiting how much vertical movement that pitch is getting and how much carry that's getting. But with a guy like Jensen, he's not really going to understand that. So I think the approach is to, to almost cue him differently, it's similar to how a strength and conditioning coach would cue someone in a squat. Um, cue someone like Jensen with the idea of trying to achieve what you're trying to achieve on the data side without explicitly telling him, we want your fastball to run another two inches. What they might talk to him about and what I talked to Jensen about was driving through the ball, staying on the inner part of the ball, which allows him to get as much run as possible. So almost taking that data, coming up with a cue and then applying it to the player in a way that they'll actually understand it, I think is a huge part of this. And with all this, too, I mean, everybody, we talked about it a bit before, they're coming off COVID seasons, right? A lot of these guys didn't pitch last year in, in live games. They threw a lot of uh, innings in, you know, bullpens or live VPs against their teammates, but nothing in actual competition. So in talking with Jensen and Thanopoulos, I know you're talking to, to Max uh, a little bit later as well, but just how are they working through that? Like from George's perspective, how does he uh, maximize the amount of throws and limits the amount of throws that these guys have with the analytics? And then a guy like Jensen and, and pitchers like him and Bain, how do they make the most of their time in between keeping them fresh, making sure that their workload isn't too advanced this year when last year was in some ways a lost season in terms of workload. Yeah, I think that comes back to what I was talking about with Bain, where he's super tapped into the data side, and he has a third-party facility outside of the team that he works with in a, in a really strong capacity, and I'd argue almost probably teaches at to some extent. But he's a he's a very different individual, so I, I imagine when I talk to Bain, I'm going to hear that he didn't see this as a problem at all. He probably almost saw it as an advantage to some extent, being able to literally focus in on, say, increasing velocity, having a very targeted goal without the pressure of having to go out there every day on the mound and perform. Um, so I think that actually might have been a benefit to him. But a guy like Jensen, it's a bit of an interesting conundrum because if he's not a Rapsodo guy, maybe he doesn't have the best understanding of what he's doing in the offseason. But I would argue that Jensen has enough feel to be able to kind of overcome that to some extent. Um, and the other thing, as I mentioned, as I talked to with George, like Jensen has hit every single one of his player development goals, whether that be the slider shape or whether that be the curveball shape. So it's almost it's a bit of like a hands-off approach you almost want to take with a guy like that because he's been so successful at every level that there's no real need to kind of inundate him with a lot of stats and a lot of data and everything that could potentially complicate what happens in his head when he steps between the lines and you don't have that real-time feedback of data to some extent. Yeah, so Lance, last one for me then is uh, what are your development goals, you know, when you're down in South Bend and are they hooking you up? Uh, are they, you getting to throw in front of the Rap Soto and try to develop the shape of your slider at all coming up? Yeah, I'm hoping to improve the, the hip to shoulder separation a little bit, actually. <laughs> I don't know about my mobility. Right hip's a little bit tight, so I got to be careful with that. I don't, I don't even want to give you the velocity number that you'd probably see if I got on the mound. It would probably be below 60 miles per hour, but uh, no, no, I hope it's above that. I really hope it's above that or my, oh, my, sure it my 
childhood baseball days have gone for nothing. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Maybe link me up on the ref soda here in a bit and uh, we'll see how I do. Sounds good. Well, I know we need to get Cole right out there for sure because he still insists he can throw 90. I think we need to put him to the test. So at some point, we'll uh, we'll definitely throw him out there. But Lance, thanks for all the knowledge. Appreciate it. Have fun, South Bend. Thank you, Tony. All right, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Trust. That was Lance Brzezowski breaking down the South Bend arms and Dan Kantrovich, the Cubs VP of Scouting, talking about the 2021 draft. We'll have a lot more Cubs prospect content at marqueesportsnetwork.com as well as our app. Thanks, as always, for listening and watching. See you guys next week.